If you live in the UK, France, Germany, Belgium, or even North America, you may well have walked past this plant with its beautiful bright pink flowers, particularly along waterways or damp areas. But this plant is highly invasive, causing a number of negative effects. Welcome to another episode of the Cabbie podcast. This series we're focusing on invasive species. I'm Donna. On this episode, we're focusing on the invasive plant Himalayan balsam with expert guests Sonal and Kate. Hi, my name's Sonal Varia and I'm a weed biocontrol scientist. I've worked at Cabbie for 12 years and um, I actually started working on Himalayan balsam when I first started as an intern. I'm Kate Pollard and I'm a research scientist um, and I work within the weeds biocontrol group um, at Cabbie in Egham. I'm a plant pathologist by training, so I work on um, using fungal agents for the classical bio biological control of invasive weeds. I've been at Cabbie for eight years and like Sonal, I've started on the Himalayan balsam project when I first started here. Brought over by plant hunters in the 19th century, Himalayan balsam is widespread in the United Kingdom. It can grow up to two metres tall with rough reddish stems and shiny oval shaped leaves and notably beautiful bright pink purple flowers from June to September. Um, Himalayan balsam or Empatine scandulifera, which is the Latin name, is a non-native invasive weed which is originally from um, the Himalayan region of India and Pakistan. From, it grows in the foothills of that region and um, in the UK it's found in damp woodlands and along uh, in riverined habitats. And this can be a problem because if you control it in one part of the system, um, it, it can always be reinvaded from further up in the catchment. So how did it arrive in Western Europe? It was first introduced to Europe in the 19th century by Victorian plant hunters as an ornamental plant because it has a really beautiful flower. It's a close relative of the busy lizzie, which is a popular um, plant in the horticultural industry. And Himalayan balsam does cause all sorts of problems. Himalayan balsam can cause, uh, can have many negative impacts on biodiversity because um, when it, where it's invading, it can grow in very dense monocultures where not many other plant species can grow. So um, because Himalayan balsam competes with native plant species for light and space and also pollinators. So um, Himalayan balsam has a really high nectar content, um, which pollinators such as bees really like and they'll often go to those flowers rather than native species. So uh, the native species are losing out on being pollinated in some cases, and there's evidence to prove this. Um, where Himalayan balsam is present, the, uh, the biodiversity of other plants is often reduced as well, and that can have effects on the invertebrates that are present there, and, um, and also have impacts on um, the, the microorganisms that are present in the soil where Himalayan balsam grows. Plus, due to its high seed count, it can spread prolifically. Himalayan balsam can produce many seeds. Each plant can produce actually hundreds of seeds and um, therefore it makes it really hard to control. And it grows in such dense patches and, and monocultures um, that it can completely take over the habitat and have a negative impact on biodiversity. Um, and when the seeds are, are ripe and um, they're projected for the pods really explosively and they can each seed can spread up to seven meters from the parent plant so you can imagine that each plant has a high capacity to produce lots of seeds and spread them very far as well and when you think about that this plant is present on um, river 
banks of rivers, you can understand how the plant, um, the seeds can spread really far by going through the water system, the river system. Due to its adverse impacts on biodiversity, there are efforts to control it, but that hasn't been so easy. As Sonal said, it grows in damp areas and along waterways, and if there's a bad infestation further upstream, controlling one downstream is a bit of a lost cause. But how do you control it? Where it grows along um, river sides, uh, you can't use chemicals, so it's very it's recommended not to use chemicals near water. Um, however, it has a very shallow root system, so um, the most commonly used method is to hand pull it because, um, yeah, even a child could probably pull out a fully mature plant. But pulling it up takes a lot of time and effort, usually from local volunteer groups. Kate explains what Cabby have been doing. Uh, so we are looking to um, control Himalayan balsam using classical biological control. Um, and that's the use of the rust fungus um, from the Himalayas um, and introducing that into the um, introduced range, so into the UK for um, control of Himalayan balsam. So the aim is that it will reduce populations of Himalayan balsam so that the native vegetation can re-establish and recolonize. Um, and so that some of the negative effects of the plant that, has, that were mentioned earlier um, are no longer present. This method of classical biological control doesn't eradicate Himalayan balsam, but means the plant becomes part of the flora instead of growing in dense monocultures, giving native species a fighting chance. This means the project needed a biological control agent and the team conducted surveys in the plant's native range. And as the name suggests, that meant the Himalayas. So um, surveys were conducted in the Himalayas, Himalayas and into, in India and in Pakistan. Um, so in 2010, um, a range of insects were um, brought back to the UK in addition to the rust fungus. Um, and these were imported into our CABI uh, quarantine facility at Egham. Um, many of these insects, well, most of the, all of these insects were ruled out because they were found to be generalists. The CABI team found that the insects fed on other species, which ruled them out of initial testing. They prioritised the rust fungus. Rust pathogens have a good history of use in biological control, and this is because they're highly host-specific. They've co-evolved with their host over um, thousands and thousands of years. Um, they're highly damaging, they often infect the leaves, um, drawing nutrients away from the plant, um, reducing overall vigour and seed production, um, and they're dispersed by the wind, so the spores um, that are on the lower leaf surface spread in the wind to new populations so they can readily establish themselves. Before they could release the rust fungus, the team tested it against 74 species, which included several varieties of popular ornamentals, economically important species, and plants which grow in the same environment as Himalayan balsam. We conducted host range testing. So this involves um, infecting plants under optimal conditions of the rust to ensure that the rust doesn't infect any species. Uh, it was found to be highly host specific to Himalayan balsam and could, could only complete its life cycle on this one plant. So we don't foresee the rust causing any problems in the field once it's been released. Following this, we compiled all of our research into a pest risk analysis and we presented the work to the government and it was um, assessed by different experts, um, including uh, people from the government and external stakeholders and the European um, Standing Committee on Plant Health. And after being granted permission, the rust fungus has since been released in the UK.
The rest was first released into England in 2014, um, and then um, we've had subsequent releases into Wales um, since then. And to date, we have two different strains of the rust. There's one from India and one from Pakistan, and they um, both infect different um, cohorts of the Himalayan balsam population. Working with local action groups and landowners, the rust fungus has been released in sites with dense populations of Himalayan balsam. Kate explains how the rust fungus works. The rust fungus um, has five different spore stages, um, and so it's termed a macrocyclic rust fungus, and it completes all of these um, stages on Himalayan balsam. Uh, it has two main it has a two main pronged attack where it causes damage to Himalayan balsam populations. So the first is at the seedling stage. So um, this is most visible as what they call esiospores. So there's orange little spores that form on the stems of Himalayan balsam seedlings, um, and these cause the seedlings to become etiolated and warped. Um, it will it can kill seedlings. Um, this stage can kill the seedlings and it renders them susceptible to secondary infection by other pathogens. Um, these spores then will spread normally in, in rain and from rain drops. And these um, spores infect more mature um, Himalayan balsam plants and they form um, what we call the Eurydinia spores. And these are um, little brown spots that you see on the lower leaf surface. And these are an asexual spore stage that um, reinfect continuously and spread by the wind. For the rust over winter, these, um, the rust produces a, an overwintering spore stage called the teleospores, and this persists in the leaf litter. This forms on the leaves, and as the leaves fall, they persist in the leaf litter over um, the winter. And um, these produce a spore stage that then initiates the esiospore formation in the spring. So it's a full cycle all on the Himalayan balsam. The CABI team trained local collaborators in how to release the rust and will conduct the first one alongside them. And then the local groups or landowners carry out subsequent releases and help with monitoring at all field sites. During the summer season, the local action groups will be assessing and then telling us what they find. Then at the end of that, the following year, in the spring, we will go to each site and assess if the rust is overwintered because that um, stage of the rust can be ch more challenging to identify. So um, we make sure that we go back to each site at that time. But how exactly does one release a rust fungus? To release the rust at our field sites, we harvest the Eurydinia spores um, into a Petri dish by tapping the leaves and we mix these spores into um, a solution with water and something called tween, which is a surfactant, and this helps the spores to stick to the lower leaf surface of the plant and um, also stop clumping. Um, so when we go to a field site, we take the solution, we make the solution in the field, and then we use this and spray this onto the lower leaf surface of a dense stand of Himalayan balsam. And crucially, is it working? At some of our release sites, um, we are seeing that the rust is establishing quite well. We're getting really good levels of infection on the leaves um, and the rust is overwintering at a number of sites in the UK. Um, we are finding that the rust, um, the longer that the rust has been established at um, a site, we're finding that the rust is spreading further from the initial, initial release patch. Um, but um, biological control is not a quick fix. And um, once established fully at a site, um, the impacts can take between five and 10 years before you can see them visibly in the field. Whilst it's not a quick fix, biological control is safe and sustainable. One of the main advantages is that 
um, once the biocontrol agent has become established, you don't need to keep um, putting more input as in putting, um, releasing more agents and putting in more money and resources. So it's also a very uh, reliable and cheap method of control and environmentally benign, we would say, because we would have done so much testing before to prove that it's safe. We would only release something that is safe to release and doesn't attack other plant species. So um, the biocontrol has got a good safety record. CABI will continue to release the rust in its current UK sites and are also looking to try and identify additional strains. At the moment, there are two rust strains being used, one from India and one from Pakistan, but these don't infect all populations in the UK. Through molecular work, the team have identified a region in the native range that they suspect the plants were originally introduced from. The plan would be to try and um, conduct more surveys in this region to identify additional strains that would therefore be able to infect a broader range of Himalayan balsam populations in the UK. Working with scientists on the ground in India and Pakistan, CABI's work on the biological control of Himalayan balsam continues. You can find out more about this project by searching CABI Himalayan balsam. But will we ever see the end of Himalayan balsam in the UK? It's too widespread. It will always be here with the, with the rust or with biocontrol. You, you generally don't aim to eradicate the weed or the pest. Um, you just want to reduce its vigour so that other plants can compete with it and it doesn't become such a dominant part of the landscape as it was, you know, what it is currently. If you've spotted Himalayan balsam in your area, the advice is to let local groups or authorities know rather than trying to tackle it yourself. And remember, unlike the plant hunters of the 1800s, never ever bring plants back into the country. I think the Victorians are responsible for a lot of our invasive <laughs> species and their plant hunters literally bringing back exotic and fancy things. This podcast is a cabby production was presented by Donna Hutchinson and edited by Tom Swindley. Thank you to our guests Kate Pollard and Son Alvaro from the Cabby Centre in Egham in the UK. For more info about Cabby and our wider work, please visit cabby.org.